Everybody, can we get a big round of applause, please, for Yukonuba Premium Dog Food for uh, allowing us to have this opportunity up here at Game Fair 2019. My name is Chad Belding. I'm the host of uh, The Foul Life on the Outdoor Channel, which Mr. M Mitch, P Mitch Petrie right here. We have nicknames for each other, and I almost said my nickname, but Mitch is the VP of Programming for the Outdoor Channel and the Outdoor Sportsman's Group out of Denver, Colorado, which is the Outdoor Channel, the Sportsman's Channel, the World Fishing Network, and all kinds of magazines. Up on the stage today, we also have Miss Laura Shera, who is celebrity in the state of Minnesota. She has a TV show locally and regionally here called Minnesota Bound, where she shares her lifestyle, her passion, the culture of Minnesota, the waters, the camping, the hunting, the fishing, recipes, uh, you name it, she does it. It's a, it's, she's a stud. Her dad, Ron, you guys know how prolific he is in the state of Minnesota and at Game Fair here. And uh, also on the panel is my buddy Andy Austin from Nashville, Tennessee, actually born and raised in North Carolina, but had dreams of being the next George Strait. So we headed a little bit to the northwest to a town called Nashville music city and now he picks a guitar and sings songs that he writes and he's very very good at it so you guys will get to hear a little bit of that today during the podcast as well as a full-blown acoustic jam session after where you guys can say whatever songs you want to hear from the bgs how deep is your love does anybody know the words of that one nobody knows 70s music here only abba abba Ooh, africa is that africa no it's toto and then I'll, uh, last but not least is another Minnesota native sitting to my direct right. I'm going to let him say his last name, Andrew. Sklozacek. You see why I had him say that? It makes zero sense. Say it one more time. Sklozacek. What kind of name is that? Czechoslovakian. Czechoslovakian. Andrew owns a very successful, an uh, up-and-coming, but very successful in two short years kennel here in Minnesota called Wild Acre Kennels. He specializes in sporting dogs, but obedience for all breeds, all styles, all makes, all sizes, like little Bacon over here. Bacon is going to do sound effects for us throughout this podcast and this live recording. This is being recorded live for the This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. It'll go to air probably in the next 14 to 17, 18 days. We'll, uh, we'll have announcements through Yukonuba and our, our social media platforms to announce that. So what we want to talk about today, what I brought everybody on this panel for when Yukonuba started having this idea is sporting dogs and dogs as a whole and dogs in general and how they play a role in our lives. And as a duck hunter and, and how I see how a dog is maintained in my life and, and, and everything that that dog brings to my life, um, it's really eye-opening when you really start to think about what dogs mean to us. So should I stop talking with this deal? Well, is that Ron? Is that your dad? Can you text that's, him? that's all right. He's just making an announcement. Can you text him and tell him to be quiet? Yes, I'll get right on that. <laughs> so anyway, guys, I, I, I truly feel that, that dogs are a key component, not just in the hunt, but all of life and you we've heard it thrown around a lot that a dog is a man's best friend and today's seminar or today's podcast is going to really center around what dogs mean to the people on this panel and how they play a role in our everyday life whether it's duck season pheasant season laura's a big pheasant hunter um and and bacon is a big pheasant retriever if i've learned right, right? yeah he's a flat-faced retriever flat-faced retriever yes. And then we're going to have some question and answers at the end of it. If you guys come up with any questions, we have a, several Yukonuba pros around the area. If we can't answer them, we'll point you in the right direction. But hopefully some of the, uh, some of the people on this panel today will be able to help us. That dude's still talking really loud. It's messing with me bad. Is it? Yeah. I know. He's making announcements. <laughs> Should I wait? I don't know if that's killing the audio or not. Hey, Chad, why don't you tell people where we are? 
that are because the podcast listeners might not understand why there's gunshots yes. behind us and Ron talking <laughs> over us. Yeah, Game Fair is uh, up in an, the Anoka, Minnesota area. Is it right in Anoka? Is this considered Anoka? Anoka County, yes. Ramsey. Ramsey. This is at a actual kennel called Armstrong Ranch, Ranch Kennels. Kennels, and it's been going on for how many years? Thirty-eight years. This is the thirty-eighth year of Game Fair, and as you can tell, there's a lot of gunfire going on behind us. A lot of announcements going on at the time, and it's starting to rain a little bit again. I think. Think. Hopefully it'll hold off. But let's start off with a, a, a just a, a, a quick question about right now it's August. Where I come from, it's usually it's somewhere between 91, 95 degrees right now. And uh, the it's it's not very humid where I live. It's a lot of uh, dry mountain air, but it's very hot. And when you're feeding dogs this time of year, Andrew, what are you really uh, you know, pinpointing, what are you focusing on to make sure that they maintain their, their energy, their strength, everything that they need, knowing that the falls, you know, a month and a half, 45 days away. Right. So get them ready for the hunting season here. Um, you definitely want to keep them in shape. You know, you don't want to let your dog be a couch potato all summer long. And then um, all of a sudden, hey, here's hunting. So let's throw the dog in the field and go out hunting. Um, so, you know, you want to get them in shape, take them for walks, take them for runs, you know, not necessarily even retrieving, just going for, like my personal dogs, I do four-wheeler runs. So I take them for a half-mile four-wheeler ride every day just to keep them, keep them in shape and watching, watching so they're not getting overweight, keep making sure they're staying athletic and um, keeping them in the water on those hot days. Right. And when you're, when you're, the supervision of a dog this time of year, as far as the diet goes, do you feed them throughout the day, little tiny niblets to keep them energized all throughout the day? Or is it once in the morning, once at night? What are you, what are you trying to maintain as far as diet nutrition goes? Um, for my dogs, I feed in the morning and then in the afternoon. Um, I just feed them a little bit in the morning, then we'll run them all day long. Then I get do give them a little bit bigger supper. With, with the last 90, 120 days, you've made the transition to where your entire kennel is feeding Yukonuba. And I know that there's a lot of that word around this tent and you see it all over and it, they're probably paying us to be here. But in your 100% honest opinion, I really want you to tell me, because I just got a text yesterday from my duck hunting buddy in California named Brad, who says he's seen a considerable difference in his dog, the coats, the 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 energy level, his the enamel on the teeth, you name it, he's seen a big difference. Are you seeing a difference in your dogs? Oh, absolutely. 100 um, percent. Without a doubt. Um, I actually just had a customer come um, the other day and um, they go, I can't believe how much darker coat and more clean, sleek looking my dog looks. And I go, yeah, we just switched to that Yukonuba dog food. And um, it literally was a night and day difference in that dog for sure. Um, all my dogs have a nice, clean, sleek coat. Um, they love eating it and um, it keeps their drive, keeps them, keeps the weight on them that we need for when we're out hunting. When you start talking about this area of the country, Mitch Petrie, when you, with your background in dogs and why don't you talk a little bit about some of your background, Mitch, as far as some of the TV shows you've worked on, some of the shows you've produced and the interaction that you consistently had with dogs over the last 10 years of your career. Yeah. Uh, thank you. know, you mentioned, um, work with outdoor channel out of Denver, but I'm actually from Mankato, Minnesota and live in Plymouth right now. And, uh, most of my dog experience came from Ron Shera because I worked for Ron for four or five years and, uh, actually we used to joke I worked for Raven 
That's right. And uh, but Laura and I were actually just talking before we started here. My experience in dogs on the media side of it is, we all love our dogs. We all love all dogs or most dogs. And the interactions that people have in watching uh, people come up and talk to Ron and Raven and wanting to talk about the dog, buying little stuffed Raven dogs. And Laura is getting that now with with Bacon, who's uh, become quite the celebrity in Minnesota as well. So, my experience was as executive producer for Pheasants Forever Television. Uh, we did a lot with all of all of the uh, dog content. Uh, I now work for the company that owns Gun Dog Magazine, Wildfowl Magazine, and um, we do Gun Dog Television in addition to the Fowl Life on Outdoor Channel. So, uh, my focus has been on the media side of uh, of dog ownership. And when you were working with Raven and Laura and her dad, Ron, was it, was the diet, was it a stickler on, on a daily basis on the way that they took care of their dogs, knowing that the energy they were going to exert on, on during the, that time of the year, during honey season? You know, um, people thought that uh, Raven, one, two, or three were coddled and were like TV stars and that, but Ron was actually very, you know, very disciplined in how he worked with and actually worked with Raven out here at this kennel and, and fed and trained it. So, uh, we saw Raven on a limited basis when she came in on camera, but Ron was very disciplined in how he fed her. It's funny when you start to talk about dogs and, and where they're coddled or they become TV stars, and we hunt with several labs. You, we, most of our labs are yellow labs or black labs. I've, we've ran two or three chocolates on the show. Um, Andrew, in your opinion, is there a difference between the breed of dogs, and is there a such thing as a good chocolate lab? <laughs> I get that question asked all the time. Uh, for some odd reason, sometimes the chocolate labs seem to be a little bit more high-strung. Um, but, you know, for the training aspect, you know, if you have good bloodlines, if they got good drive, you know, they're just as good hunting dog as a black or a yellow. Um, my favorite is um, yellow and black. That's what I hell have. Um, but there isn't nothing wrong with a good chocolate hunting dog. Are you sure 100% on that answer? Yep. 100%. 100%. Andy Austin down there, uh, up here, he flew in from Nashville, Tennessee this morning. You guide in North Dakota, which can get really cold in the October, November time frame, and then you migrate south with the ducks. You end up Louisiana, Mississippi Delta, Arkansas flooded timber, timber western Tennessee, Kentucky, Ballard County, Kentucky, some of the, you know, the high-maintenance mallard hunters of the country where they really, really care about their mallard ducks like we do. Um what is the difference between your dog's diet in North Dakota and the South? Does it change up with the, the temperature change? Um, a lot of times, I mean, your dogs are running so much. Whenever they're just shaking up there in the cold weather, even through October, you got, you're burning so much energy. So uh, a lot of times, you know, I'll add whatever fat I can get in my food during the day to keep them, keep them eating. Um, I add a lot of eggs and stuff during when I'm running kind of in hunts. And then when it breaks down, I got a smaller lab from he's south louisiana and um he can't really take the cold as well as you know some dogs that we hunt with but um i try to run him you know two three four days in a row and i'll give him a day off but i mean it all depends we just your food kind of stays the same throughout the year i mean you'll feed them more as much as they'll eat usually don't give them two scoops in the winter you give them as much as they'll eat because they're burning so many calories yeah i agree with that as well and some people really try to keep count on on how much food they're going to feed the dog but if that dog is on a long hunt if it's cold if he's breaking ice i i'm a proponent of feeding him more if needed during that time of the year and when he talks about dogs that break down in the cold guys one of the mistakes that i see make made a lot from a duck hunter is the expectations of a high powered lab or a duck dog and what i mean by that is 
they they can only do so much they can only handle so much so what we try to really focus on during duck season is if we see something going on to where the elements change and they're bitter cold or if they're breaking ice we're trying to watch every single move that that dog's making during that hunt because we're going to be the first one to pull him out of that hunt and let him rest on a retrieve we're going to cut the, sh the hunt short to make sure that that dog is taken care of and that he we never put him in harm's way because i've seen everything go wrong with the dog once the weather changes and I've seen cuts on their wrists from the ice that can turn into a, a bad deal in a hurry. Um, I've also seen a lot of it where that when they get back in the blind, they almost they almost freeze to death because of all of the water mixed with the cold temperatures. If you're into the hunt so much and you're only paying attention to the aesthetics of the hunt, the vocalizations of your duck call, and you're all into the camaraderie and the high five, and you're going to have a hard time focusing on what that dog's doing. And sometimes we take it for granted. Oh, our dog's a stud. He can make it. Well, that's not the case. we got to really pay attention. And, and Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm constantly watching the dogs. A lot of times we'll have buddy heaters. Mr. Buddies will wrap them in jackets. We'll have shimmy towels that will get the water off of the dog after every retrieve. A lot of times, if it's real cold and we see that dog's attitude or his mental stability or capacity changing, we're going to get in the boat and we're going to go retrieve the down ducks and let that dog have two or three sessions off or retrieves off because there's no reason to put him through that at all. Um, their bodies are not meant for that. It's not the Iditarod. They're not trained for that. Even though they will handle it, we have you got to be very cognitive of when it's time to call it quits and blow the whistles that sound fair Andrew absolutely 100% you know biggest thing with a lot of people don't realize is when you're taking that dog out and they're jumping in that cold water they're not even feeling it at first because they're so excited to go get that retrieve their drive is going through the roof um, so all they're thinking about is getting that prize and they don't think about being cold until they get back into the boat well then when we're not paying attention to that dog you know they could really be going into a cold shock or anything you could have a bunch of problems with them in the future um, so like what I do like if you if it's possible a lot of times we'll park a truck if it's accessible um, park a truck that's closer and then um, or we can access it throughout the hunt and we'll have a dog sitting in the truck in a heated box so then we can switch out dogs if needed so we'll hunt that dog for a little while in the morning go throw it in the heated box and then grab the new dog and keep continuing hunting it's not always accessible in every situation but if you can't have another truck with another dog that's a huge huge plus as well and the other part of duck dogs that I wanted to touch on, and I want Laura to speak on this, is that duck dogs are still pets. They're still our buddies. They are a tool. We utilize dogs as a tool during duck season. We make sure that they're disciplined. We make sure that they maintain their focus throughout the duck season because 100%, first and foremost, they have a job to do during that hunt. But when it comes time for the, that season to end and you get into March, April, May, the spring, the summer, those dogs are our buddies, and we we do let them be dogs. And I think that a lot of the mentality of a duck hunter is that my dog's a machine, and he's always going to be you know on his best behavior. He's always going to be disciplined. He's always going to be working, or he's always going to be in training or boot camp. And I think that if you take the attitude on, on the other side of the spectrum, is let them let them chill a little bit. Let them be dogs. Let them play. Let their personality come out because they're so used and so wired to pleasing us all the time that it's now our turn to please them during the spring and summer. So, Laura, talk to me a little bit about bacon and your pets and and the role that they play in your life during the you know time of the year when you're not out hunting. Sure, absolutely. You know, dogs I I think are always um, really family first and and hunting companions second in my eyes. Um, and it is really important, you know, growing up in pheasant fields, um, watching the dogs work was always one of my favorite things to do as a young girl. And 
um, you know, they, they do really work hard, and I think it is really important to have as much bonding time with them outside of the field in your own home um, with your family members as much as it is when they um, are out in the field with you because I think they'll work harder for you. And, um, you know, I, I own a French bulldog. I don't have a retriever myself, um, but I've certainly have hunted behind um, some amazing dogs and um, the importance of, of nutrition, again, even with all the dogs that we've had, all the ravens in the past have eaten Yukonuba dog food and um, and it is definitely, it's key. And especially you guys talk about the cold and watching your dogs in the cold. I think the opposite spectrum of that is also being con uh, cognizant of heat and high temperatures when you're pheasant hunting and how dogs can overheat really fast. And I've been in some situations where um, dogs have actually gotten heat stroke from not paying attention to cooling your dog down or actually quitting. And um, it's hard for a lot of hardcore hunters to say, I'm going to call this right now because they don't want to and they underestimate um, the power of the heat to um, get to a dog or the, or the cold for that matter and so I think you made a really valid point that it's important to really watch the dogs because they are really working really hard for you they don't really necessarily know when to quit until it's too late and in fact um, years ago when I was a young girl my dad had a lab um, she was older and she was out in the field and she in fact did get heat stroke and passed away right by his bedside at night and um, she was like 10 so she had a great life but that was a really big lesson and um, and you know you just don't know so heat is a really important factor when you're out there hunting especially you know pheasants in October and things like that can still be really warm yeah I agree with that 100% and she keyed in on something there too the socialization of a dog does everybody in the audience understand the the, the socialization of what a dog should go through to be to be um, you know ready to be around a family, be ready to be around kids, nephews, sons, whatever it is. Um, I see a lot of people, again, where that dog is considered a machine and the social skills were never developed in that dog. And when he gets around people, he gets anxious. He develops anxiety. When the people leave, he starts to whine a bunch. The, you know, there's a lot of things that, that can happen with a dog if, those, if that so, so, social skills aren't developed. How, what are some of the steps that you take at the kennel to start developing those social skills? Um, we start that really at eight weeks of age. Um, a lot of times, you know, when you're taking that young puppy, you know, invite friends over, get them used to people, get them used to everyone, take them to the grocery store, take them to Walmart, wherever you go, take that dog with you so it gets used to seeing people. And the next step what we do is um, a lot of crate training. A lot of people are anti-crates, but now when you do leave to go on a vacation and your dog has to be in a kennel or has to be in a crate, you know, I hear calls all the time of people like, my dog's breaking out of this crate. It's a escaping is blowing right through breaking it um, a lot of it is you didn't give that dog enough time in a crate you know so when they're a young puppy you know allow them to be in that crate obviously let them out you know three four five times a day give them good exercise but then when no one's around have them in that crate just get them used to life in a crate or if you're traveling to go hunting somewhere you know you want to be that dog adjusted in that crate life as well too Andy Austin, would you think that the best song ever written about a dog is Old Red with Blake Shelton, or is there another one that comes off? Can anybody in the audience tell me their favorite song written about a dog? I got a duck call in that Deemer box to the left of Shul uh, Laura right over here, that, that little speaker box. I got a brand new Jargon duck call. I'm going to give it away. If you guys can pick a dog song that my boy Andy Austin can sing in that microphone with his guitar right there. Ooh, Feed Jake. Is that Confederate Railroad? Damn it, boy, that's a good one. You got that one? Uh, I'm going to probably look Jake. it up. Fee, what, you think you can nail it by the end of the day? Have, uh, has anybody ever heard Mo Pitney? Oh, I like Mo. He's a country music artist out of Nashville. Um, super country. He's got a song called Just a Dog. And if you don't cry, 
whenever you listen to it, then you're, you don't love dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that. You know it? Hey, you no need... cheat, no Googling. You can't Google it. <laughs> 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 I need a dog song. I need a... Oh, I got the song. What song is it? Oh, Walt Gabbard. Oh, Ducks, yeah, dogs, and decoys. Yeah. Labrador. Oh, Walt Gabbard. I love before. Walt Gabbard. My favorite country music story about Walt Gabbard is I went to see Chris Knight live with Walt Gabbard. We got to hear him sing Framed. And uh, you know who Chris Knight is? Uh huh. God, he's a Y'all need to start listening to Chris Knight. Laura, you're looking at me like you don't know who Chris Knight is, do you? Uh, Laura's more, Laura's more into not. Bruno Mars. Sing oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm a country music fan. Sing 24 Karat Gold. I don't even know that song. All right, guys, I'm going to have Andy <laughs> sing a song real quick, and I'm going to give this duck call away. I got to come up with a way to give this duck call away that pertains to you, Canoe, because this is a, a brand new jargon duck call, single read, small talk design. It's got you, Canuba engraved on it, painted in pink. So the dudes, you got to you got to be manly. You got to own it up during the duck season. Real men can wear pink and pull it off, right? What's your name? You look familiar. No, I, th- I thought it was Jason Aldean. <laughs> you look like Aldean a little bit, don't you? A little bit. A little bit. A little Aldean. All right. Give me, give me a song right now, Andy. This is Andy Austin, guys. He's He moved to Nashville. He uh, he played in our booth at the National Wild Turkey Federation Convention in Nashville in February. We fell in love with his style, his passion for music. And I want you guys just to uh, give him a hand when he's done. He's uh, When you when you leave your hometown and you and you get the you-know-what, the brash you-know-what, she says that she has, hey, what are they called? What were you talking about today? Something that you don't have? What's the word that you used? Non-existent. <laughs> Non-existent, but he had them, guys, and he moved from his hometown, and he said, I'm going to the Honky Tonks in Nashville. If anybody's ever been to Nashville, they know about Upper Broadway, Lower Broadway, Midtown. They know about Losers, and they know about Whiskey Bent and the Wild Horse, and these guys go to these places like the Tin Roof and the Blue Bar and all sorts of places, and they play these songs that they write in just hopes that one of these big-time musicians get a hold of them or these guys turn into a big-time musician. We've seen it happen before our eyes with several of our good friends that have moved to Nashville. And now here we are with another one that has made his trek up there, which, again, it takes a lot of guts not to use that college degree and just go get a 9-to-5. But he sits down, he writes songs, and I I want everybody to give him a hand right now because he just got awarded a publishing deal by which publishing company? King Song, guys, meaning that he is full-time employed in America right now to write songs. Could you imagine being that good to where you get to write songs every day and make a paycheck doing it? That's how good and creative this guy's mind works. So let's hear an original. What, which one are you going to do? We got any Luke Combs fans out there? Yes. I, uh, if you ever heard of Ray Fulcher, uh, I wrote this one with Ray and uh, my good buddy, Mr. Ward. So he wrote this, and this become a number one for Luke, didn't it? Did it be, did it go number one? Not yet. It hasn't yet. Not yet. So uh, Luke Combs is good. That dude is redneck. Does everybody know who Luke Combs is? Beer never broke my heart. Yeah, cold beer never broke my heart. Hold my mouth right. So whenever you write, you know, you usually write four to five days a week. 
And uh, you can't really remember all the words because you don't listen to it on the radio every day. So y'all bear with me while I get these pulled up. Right? But no, uh, I wrote this song. It's called Time Machine. And uh, it's talking about if you have one, you wouldn't even need it because I wouldn't take anything back. Superman's cape for just one day I pick you fresh flowers from all 50 states Pick you up after work Fly you around Be back in time just to save the whole town If a genie in a bottle Give me anything you thought of We'd be sitting in a mansion High up on the water Yeah, anything in the world Snap your fingers and it's yours If I had a time machine no, there wouldn't be no need to ever even cranking it up. It'd be sitting here gathering dust. Probably put it up for sale. You get better use from someone else. Cause looking at us now at how we turned out, I wouldn't change a thing. If I had a time machine. Now you got me thinking, what if I really did it? I went back in time even just for a minute Saw Hank on the rhyming stage Hear Grandpa saying grace I'd be back before you knew I was gone But what if what I did threw the universe off It wouldn't be worth the risk That you and I never met If I had a time machine no, there wouldn't be no need to ever even cranking it up. It'd be sitting there gathering dust. Probably put it up for sale. You get better use from someone else. Cause looking at us now at how we turned out, I wouldn't change a thing if I had a time machine. If I had a time machine, no, there wouldn't be no need to ever even cranking it up. It'd be sitting there gathering dust. I'd probably put it up for sale, get better use from someone else. Cause looking at us now at how we turned out, I wouldn't change a thing if I had a time machine. Y'all imagine being a performer in like a, a, a coliseum where there's a big flock of Canada geese off of this corner over here. Yeah. Army training going on behind you right here. 
A lady doing a jumping dog demonstration over here. That'd be hard. That's hard, huh? Keep that concentration. Good for you, man. See what I mean about that whole song is so clever and witty and the way that these songwriters can put words together and paint that picture. I'm pretty sure that's why we fall in love with country music. Mitch, you agree with that? Absolutely. I think someone should do a podcast about country music and the outdoors. I think Mitch Petrie has one. Mitch, what's yeah. the name of your podcast? It's called Country Outdoors Podcast. I, I thought How it was original. Huh? I thought it was called This Life Is For, for Most People. <laughs> with, with bad Chelding. With bad yeah, Chelding. It's my stage name. Let's give him another round of applause, guys. That's, That's awesome. so awesome. Right, thank you all very much. I'm so envious of songwriters and and. When, when you find inspiration in life, when, and, and I find inspiration in so many ways, but when you can find it and apply it, when you see passion in somebody, when you see somebody that loves what they do to where that job doesn't, isn't a job anymore and they just wake up and they do it because it's what they were put on earth to do, you got to start thinking that way, in my opinion, is that we really do end up doing what we're supposed to do. If, if it's meant to be, it's going to happen. In my opinion, as I've matured into my 40s, I really think that everything in life happens for a reason. And I think that because of the outdoors, because of hunting, because of conservation, because of the heart of a duck hunter, a turkey hunter, a deer hunter, a predator hunter, a western big game hunter, it doesn't matter what you chase. If you're a big fisher, if you like to cook wild game, if you like to be a provider and butcher and process wild game meat, taking it off the bone and providing that bounty in the middle of that table and seeing the smiles on your friends and family faces, I, I, I honestly think that everything in life happens for a reason. And hunting is that common denominator, Mitch Petrie that really truly brings so many different walks of life together to where I'd bet a hundred bucks that there's probably not two people in the audience right now that do the same thing, except maybe a dog trainer, because I'm, I'm probably, there's probably a couple in the back row. Well, Jake Terry's not, Hey, everybody see that kid in the Yeti hat back there. That dude's one of the best outdoor photographers in America right now. Check him out on Instagram, Jake Terry photo. He's really creative with his photos and uh, he's like a songwriter with his camera. But again, relating back to passion and inspiration, if you love it and you do it, it's not going to be a job anymore. And when Andy sings that song and you start thinking about a time machine, it really would sit there and collect dust because we truly are here doing what we're supposed to do. And if you find that special someone that you're supposed to share life with, I'm kind of breaking down that song right now, right there. You don't need a time machine because That's you're fine. already living it. Right. So I, I'm getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but I truly feel that the outdoors brings that to us and dogs are a big part of that. And I think that as I look at the dogs that we get to run with, we get spoiled in a lot of ways with the, with the, I guess just talent is the word you're looking for the dogs that we get to hunt with and not all dogs are at the same talent level. And sometimes you really do start to develop a mindset of like, man, I'd do anything to have that dog I had last week. And like I brought up chocolate labs because I've always had it in my head that there's no such thing as a good one. And I've always tried to find scientific proof that I'm right. And I haven't found it yet, but I continue to search it. And um, I'm just totally kidding. You can do, but I know that <laughs> chocolate labs are awesome, but I, I want to move on a little bit with the dog part of it about in the audience. Is there interest of anybody or questions that, that somebody at Yukonuba or a pro here can answer as far as the dogs that you're training or running with right now? Is there anybody, I don't want to hand the microphone around if there's no question. Is there anybody that wants to get on the microphone and sing? Is there a karaoke king in the house or a queen? You guys, I want to be interactive with the audience. Um, I'm trying to really get past the audio in my headphones because it's really, there's a lot of different conversations going on inside of them. But um, you, is there anything in the audience that wants to be asked said sung anything right now somebody say something please hands up free duck call to the best question right now 
I think that goose over there has a, has a has question, a question for you. <laughs> I should answer him back, huh? Okay, my next question for the for Andrew, the dog trainer, is when it comes to obedience, I was I was watching a dog the other day and he ran into the this six, seven year old girl and completely took her knees out. And I was thinking like, that's dangerous, right? Like if you got a 70 pound lab that just runs into the house, buck crazy like that and smokes a kid and takes their, their MCL or something out, is that part of obedience training that you can prevent things like that happening? Oh, absolutely. That's the whole part of the obedience training. And not only just knocking over kids, but it's actually could, could hurt your dog as well too. It could tear an ACL. It could do, could do anything like that. Um, but basic obedience is number one, number key before hunting. You got to have a good obedient dog to have a good hunting dog as well too. You know, having that basic obedience so you can have friends over and your dog's not jumping all over them or you can go outside to a dog park and let your dog run, not have to keep it on a leash. Um, and then you can have a respectful dog too so it's not going to run and jump over little kids or knock over everything off the coffee table inside the house. You know, having a good, well-obedient dog is great for in the house and for out in the field as well too. Andrew, Austin, what is the, your definition of a blind retrieve? <sighs> a blind retrieve? Uh, a dog trusting you that there's a bird out there and he's 100% relying on you to tell him where it's at. He's going to listen to you. Has anybody in the audience duck hunted before? Do we have a bunch of duck hunters up in here? So all of you guys have had that situation happen where you might get into him and drop three. There might be a, a, a bird that falls off somewhere where the dog didn't have a visual on it. And that's a that's a really cool thing to me to be able to have a dog so well-trained and disciplined that he can get the two and the decoys and then you can send him through whistle commands and hand signals back to where you were able to pick up a visual of where that duck whether he was crippled or deceased that dog that duck might be swimming but once that dog gets over there and he lets his nose go to work he picks up that scent trail of it it's truly an accomplishment and a sense of accomplishment not just in that dog but in the dog owner right Andrew of, of what you feel when you see that happening it's almost like when you take your nephew your niece or your, your son or daughter on their first duck hunt or deer hunt and you see that first harvest which is a big deal in a lot of hunters eyes um on a blind retrieve how what is the first step and what give the, give the audience an idea of something that they can take home to work on that um so to work on a blind retrieve um the biggest thing that i do is um first you got to sit the dog down go out 20 30 40 yards drop dummies and have your dog sit in that 30 40 yards away from you um, and then go back to the dog side and then i send them on a back cast um, and then you just build up that confidence. Once your dog's doing that, going that 30, 40 yards, um, then I take away the dog, put, leave it in the truck or put it in the kennel, whatever, go out in that exact same spot and put them dummies without the dog seeing it. Then get the dog back out and see if he, he or she remembers that, that line that you're giving them. Um, and always have your wind in your favor, and then you just slowly start at 30, 40 yards, and you just keep working your way back to build that confidence up to, you know, you're stretching that dog out to 400-some yards. Does everybody in the audience, if they had a blind retrieve before on a hunt, have you guys witnessed that before? You have a question, or have you are you have you witnessed it? You, have you? Where were you? Here, come get the microphone. I want to see how good of a singer you are after you tell us the story. <laughs> While she's walking, I, I've I've hunted with a retriever that I thought was blind. She has a chocolate lab. I've been talking Amen. smack about chocolate labs this whole time. Somebody could have told me. No. Um, this was like a couple years ago when I was a kid. Uh, we got a Abigail, our spring, Springer Lab, and it was our first, 
second year with her, and my dad and my uncles were just making crap of our dog, and my dad's like, Abby, get, and she'll go get it. And then there was another one down, he's like, Abby, get, and she'll go get the other one. And then there was like one way out there, my, my dad's like, Abigail, and she's like, boom, gone. She's like, she just brings my dad, drops her, like, what do you think? Did I do good? My dad goes, good job. And my uncle's like, I haven't given my dad crap since. So they have done it, but they're like, your dog's dumb. And my dad's like, like Abigail, get. And he, she's just like gone. He's like, hey, hey, look at, hey, look at me. You can't touch yeah. this. Oh, an MC hammer. Your theory's out the out the door here. She has a chocolate lab. So. God, I feel terrible. Right I know. I think we should also talk about women and hunting dogs, or even if your husband or whatever is a hunter and you're a wife in the house of obedience with women. And, um, you know, growing up in my household, we had hunting dogs all the time, numerous of them. And my dad was really good about instructing both my mom and both and my sister and I in regards to how you speak to um, dogs because your voice is naturally higher pitched. So a lot of times women, you don't get the same responses when men, you know, give commands to dogs because they have a lower tone in their voice. They probably are a little bit more stern in their voice. Women have a tendency to be a little bit softer and say, sit, sit. And he, my dad was always really good about teaching all of us in the household to um, give a lot of instruction and obedience to the dogs as much as he did. So there's a lot of rules in the household, but also making sure your voice is a lower tone and you're telling the dog what to do and never asking it. And um, so I think that's always a good tip for ladies and wives and things that you also have the authority to tell the dog what to do and not to make sure your voice isn't too soft in nature. Have you heard of that before, Andrew? Oh, all the time. All the time. <laughs> the biggest thing I say to my lady customers are just, um, you know, when you go home, because the problem is, is usually moms spoil the dogs the most and the dogs feed off of that. Um, but the biggest thing is, you know, you can always spoil your dog, love your dog do everything with it but you know when you ask it to do something just make it do it and then that dog will always respect you out in the field and at a dog park anywhere but don't always just talk in that high-pitched squealy voice you know get that point across that dog that hey I need you to come back I need you to sit and then you can go into the spoiling mode after that how how long is a a, a, a training session for a dog what give, give us the time span of the light you know how, how it starts when you get a dog how old do you start the training when do you start socialization to bring us through it to when that dog's ready to go hunting right so um socialization socialization is day one i mean as soon as you get that eight week old puppy you need to be bringing it to the like we were saying before the dog store or the pet stores the yeah walmart's grocery stores anything um and then getting that dog used to all kinds of people different noises different areas um, and then growing that dog and getting it on a wing on a frozen bird um, then we get to the point when they're five months of age then we start doing your gun breaking your intro to guns getting them excited on frozen birds clip wing birds and then we actually go into like a, we shoot live flyers for them getting them excited about all gauges of guns um, and then once they turn about seven months of age is when I go into the, doing the intermediate training. So that's getting them steady shots, steady to boats, steady to blinds, quartering, ranging in the field, um, all your basic obedience. Um, all that's all done at that seven months of age. Um, so we just start out at an eight-week-old puppy. You know, you're teaching them sit right then and there to the point where we get them steady to shots, steady to boats, steady to blinds, ready for that next hunting season. And what, when somebody makes that commitment to training... Austin, have you have you trained your dogs professionally? Have they been through kennels and training systems, or do you do it on your own? So I've only had one lab. Um, I've had him for three years, but he come out of Booyah Kennels. It was out of southern Louisiana. Um, when I got him, it was, you know, I had to work on a few things as far as sit to, sit to uh, whistle and everything and just really, you know, paying attention to me off of it. But um, 
professionally know and to, to hit back on one thing on your blinds um, a lot of times you know you can a lot of people will run two or three blinds and your dogs they know you know it's going to be two or three bumpers every time if you're if you'll run five or six blinds and before every retrieve even if it's a you know 20 yards in the in the yard and the dog can see the bumper if you'll if you'll dead bird before every retrieve that way when there's no bumper he can see and you say dead bird he'll know hey there's one out there because he says it every single time before he sends me and i know that i'm going to pick one up that uh, that'll help a lot with you know if you shoot into a group and you get four or five sailors that go out and you kill two in the decoys and then the dog has to pick up five or six birds mitch speaking of picking up birds what um tell everybody about the experience you had with us in colorado is it pretty cool hunting geese in colorado and and seeing the and seeing the dogs work up there out of those pit blinds i, I was hoping you'd ask me that because it's like about the only thing i have left to talk about um <laughs> we can talk about your cats and my cats yeah uh. um we hunt in Colorado, and people don't think about it. And I actually have an idea on how to give away your call, and I'll tie it into this story, if that's if that's all right. Uh, the western front of the, of the Colorado Rockies, the geese don't like to fly over them. They like to fly alongside of them. And I've hunted Saskatchewan for ducks and, and geese, and Colorado was on the same caliber. It was a very different experience, but it was so cool to see the numbers of geese. And um, we, we hammered them, and I, was, I have an office in Denver, so... I think we shot a limit, filmed a couple interviews, and I was at my desk at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's how cool it was. And you could actually see people commuting and driving through where we were hunting. But uh, fantastic hunting. But that was, I had this idea on how to give away your call, if I can help give away your call. Fans of the foul life, uh, as I'm sure we all are, where do you think Chad's favorite place to hunt is? And it's Colorado might be up there, but let's say Colorado's not the answer. Um, any ideas where you think his favorite place to hunt waterfowl would be? No. It's a, it's a state. No? No, you? No, 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 not you. Relatives are disqualified. Huh? Did Jake Terry just Google that? No. Well, I, I, you know what? I thought, for me, Arkansas was kind of a... Um, was a a trick answer because I don't think it's Arkansas. I mean, you love Arkansas, but you love Saskatchewan. Where didn't you tell me that? Well, someone you, you got to give us a guess. Everyone gets a guess. Huh? Minnesota. No. No. Anyone? Don't anyone? Us, Chad. Where else in the? Where else out west do you hunt? Uh, I I would say that my top my top areas, if you're talking about mallard ducks, I would pick Arkansas or the Snake River in Boise, Idaho. I, I Idaho was the one I was the trick answer I was going for because Idaho is a really as a Minnesota guy, I was like, seriously, you're hunting waterfowl in Idaho and in Colorado. So the the, the actual answer I was going for was Idaho. Did anybody say Idaho? No. Damn, I'm never gonna give these calls away. <laughs> <laughs> Let's come up with another trivia question that we can but try. Us, to get I mean, on. tell us about hunting in Idaho because Idaho is uh, Idaho is a different kind of water state because you have the columbia basin that comes out of eastern washington through kind of the tri-cities and it filters down and and then you have the snake river corridor that you know runs down through oregon and then into western idaho and then it kind of goes through boise and parma and then down into twin falls and that entire region of of eastern washington and that part of idaho is is a lot of corn with the ethanol prices
increases in the popularity of corn growth in America through farming now, the dry feeding in that area is like it is in the Midwest. You know, in southern and southwest Minnesota, um, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, you start getting into those states, even, even, you know, even a little bit west of North Dakota into Billings, Montana, there's a lot of dry feeding that goes on. So once that corn hopped up like it did and those ducks had the ability to go dry feed in those in that part of the country they never did that before they never really dry feed in the pacific northwest or down into idaho so now with the snake river always being open and all of the corn fields readily available with all of that dry corn that's very high in carbohydrates and when you're talking about a wild duck that's making that migratory journey they need to have a lot of calories they need to develop a lot of body fat to get them through that winter because at the end of that migration south all of a sudden their senses go off and they know it's time to breed so what do they have to do they got to make the trip all the way back north and they got to have tons of reserves so corn farming and the popularity of it has brought a lot of different awesome duck hunting spots in america that weren't really ever known for it so the snake river corridor you get down on a jet boat or in a duck boat and you you can go anywhere from five to 20 miles and you're and you're down in the snake river gorge and you got walls that are four or five hundred feet tall on both sides of you and those ducks are coming off those cornfields off of that high plateau and they plateau and they just pretty much parachute down into the snake river and it's the amount of ducks is awesome and just the entire spectacle of it the aesthetics of idaho is absolutely gorgeous it's unlike anywhere you've ever seen in your life the snake river gorge so i would say it's idaho it's right there with arkansas arkansas is an amazing place if you ever look at the geography of the of the mississippi flyway and once that mississippi river where it's really wide up north and as it starts to funnel and bottleneck down into you know the mississippi delta and the arkansas area which we call the grand prairie which is the rice capital of the world and the duck capital of the world which was self-acclaimed but it really is because arkansas with a 60-day season and a four duck four mallard a day limit they harvest more mallards than any other state in america so if you do the math on that that shows you how powerful and how many mallards are in that area so with the white river the cash river the black river the arkansas river and how they all start to feed through the state of arkansas i don't even know what that is that coyote call is that a coyote so arkansas is special because of all the flooded timber and people from all over the world come to arkansas to hunt mallard ducks it's one of the it's probably the number one tourist destination for duck hunting or waterfowl hunting in the world with maybe the chesapeake bay or the eastern shore being up there but with it only being one canada goose a day now in the eastern shore not many people are going to travel that far to only have the ability or the opportunity to harvest one goose when when you see mallard ducks cast into a set of flooded timber on a bluebird day there's nothing like it in duck hunting in my opinion so i don't know if anybody guessed idaho i guess we could give the call to whoever said arkansas even though jake terry googled it and then yelled it out loud (laughs) jake you're gonna pay me for that duck call i I had the correct answer you did idaho i'll give it to you the question and the answer you sound unbelievable (laughs) so does anybody have any questions at all about ducks dogs duck calling laura sharon her new cookbook that she's coming out with that i'm going to be on the cover of she just told me today <laughs> Am I? here's a question we got a question yes sir here can i give them that please i have a dog question i'm just wondering uh, if you've done all the research and you finally decided on a breeder that you're going to go with uh, how do you make the determination when you're the Uh, number one person on the list for 
picking a dog. So you get the pick of the litter, basically. Right. So what I do when I go pick the dog, especially if you got pick of the litter, that's that's the best. Um, so go there and just see all the puppies. Okay. Just kneel down, you know, and then see which ones come to you first. You know, ask questions to the breeder. Which one's the most active? Which one sleeps the most? Which one um, kind of sleeps a little bit, but then is more rambunctious? Me personally, when I go get a puppy, I go, which is the craziest one out of the litter? That's the one that I take home. Um, and then once we kind of narrow it down to two or three puppies, then I'll have a wing with me, like just a pigeon wing. And I'll throw that around and just watch. You'll see some puppies will grab it right away. Then the next dog won't. They'll just kind of ignore it and walk away from it. So grab, take the one that's that's instinct that's the first thing that they do is pick it up that's you know that's another key that i would take home with me or if you don't have a wing you know grab a little tiny bumper or something but biggest keys are just ask your um, breeder which one's the most crazy and usually those turn out to be the best you can always tone them down but you can't put it into them that's a good point i like that good job andrew i would say his last name but then i would fall i'd pass out (laughs) what is it Sklozacek. Try spelling Maybe that. Maybe we should give school. a duck call away to somebody that can spell it. <laughs> you need a, you need an easy button. Like every time you need to say his last name, just go. Sklozacek. Sklozacek. All right, guys, we're going to wrap this up unless anybody has any more questions. Any more questions from the audience? I have a question, and it's a legitimate one about duck hunting in Minnesota. Okay. Because I grew up here, and duck hunting hasn't been fantastic most of my life we usually leave minnesota to go duck hunting uh last year i saw a maybe five thousand mallards circling around western metro it looked like i was in saskatchewan it was like the first time so uh it was interesting what you said about corn and idaho uh and i don't know about you know the the winds and that is it possible that like we're going through a cycle where duck hunting will be better in minnesota just because of agriculture or because of you know just uh weather or yeah i think i think so for sure i think that you're going to start to see a a lot of ducks that don't really make it all the way down the migratory routes because of the amount of food and and like last year for example and even the year before you add on the mild winters that really it was mild winters in most part besides the big storms that came through in in late october and early november in, in canada last year it was a mild winter along most of the flyway so you hear people in louisiana all the time or western tennessee or even arkansas saying we just don't see the ducks that we that we once saw and that can be attributed to ethanol and corn growth it can be attributed to to a lot of different refuges that are up there but there's a lot of people that are farming for ducks now and they're holding a lot of ducks for a lot longer so if you only have a 60-day season to work with and you get a big time winter in the beginning and all the ducks move south really fast like they did last year and the season's not even open because it doesn't open in arkansas until the third week in november right so by that time, the ducks were already down there, ate a bunch of the rice, and they already shot back north because it get, got mild again. And they know that. They can sense that. So they went back north and started eating that corn, waiting for the snow line to figure out where it was going to be. So with Minnesota, and your question is seeing those big grinds of 5,000 mallard ducks on a cornfield, I truly think that be, whether it's it's a different flyway where they shift because a lot you've seen a big shift of ducks in the Mississippi flyway that have moved a little bit west into southeastern Kansas and all over Oklahoma City all the way east to Tulsa a little bit and then all the way to the Panhandle and, and eastern Texas so I would say that yeah definitely you could see some of those North Dakota ducks that are used to being around Devil's Lake with all the, maybe it's pressure maybe it's all the tourism that that went to North Dakota for all these years and all those ducks felt all that pressure maybe they did move a little bit east into minnesota now around mankato you you start to you start to see a little bit more of a duck you know a duck population i'm just i'm just 
spit spitball on that that but i i definitely have seen different places because of corn where they attract ducks and keep ducks there i think a little bit of our problem in minnesota for the duck hunting part is the farmers do like um they put all this tiling in the field Mm -hmm. and then on that tiling that drains out your fields and then they till everything 100 percent black so then we don't have any food source for them at all really either it's kind of my gist of it all too and if Ron were here, he would complain about mowing ditches in Minnesota as well That's for the correct. upland as yeah. well. As well, that's a good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you complain about, Laura? I think it's a balance um, that has to be done on conservation efforts on behalf of, um, obviously, outdoorsmen and also on the farming side as well. It's, it's definitely a balance. I understand both sides. Um, and we've gone into deep uh, conversations on both sides. But it, our wetlands here are um, in trouble, and we're doing things to hopefully improve that. But. I think it's really important that there are voices, though, like the voice she has. I did a podcast yesterday with Fred Eichler, who is a very successful bow hunter. He's he's harvested every North American, all 29 species of North America big game with a, a recurve bow. So think wow. about how close you have to get to a stone sheep to be able to do that. And how do you get that close to a stone sheep? But anyway, he started talking. And I was listening to his voice and I listened to Laura talk. And I think that in the future that it's it's more important to have those voices talking about things of conservation and how to what 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 are we going to strive for whether it's no-till farming whether it's corn growth whether it's farming for ducks what is considered baiting what is not considered baiting should you mow the ditches what happened to our wild pheasant population what what deters or what what benefits wild pheasant what helps there's so much that goes into conservation and again i go back to those words the heart of a hunter or the compassion of a hunter everybody that hunts is a conservationist if they have the if they have their mind right and their focus right to where they know that they're not out there just to pull that trigger a bunch of times the money that we invest in just the duck stamp program in america goes to bring so much financial gain and benefit to our flyways and to the habitat for wild ducks so is something going on everything okay so it um if if you we have a voice, if you really want to get involved and be a hunter, try to establish your own voice, educate yourself on what's going on out there, because it is written into our Declaration of Independence that we have the right to bear arms. We have the freedom of speech. OK, it's not written in there that we can hunt, that we're allowed to hunt for the rest of our lives. It's a privilege that can literally be taken away from us at any time. And it's going to be a hunter that does something that gets that privilege taken away. In my opinion, I don't think the antis have what it takes to do it. And the other part about antis is that all I'm saying is that if you're anti hunting, just educate yourself on why you are before you go make those ballot decisions, because the decisions are going to be made at the ballot box now and not because it's beneficial bio- biologically or, or um, as far as the actual species of the animal goes. And I really mean that really study up on that and let's all try to start developing a voice. And when she, when Laura started talking, it really sparked me that that is way more important than how many ducks you kill in a season. I always hear it. How many did you get last year? How many did you get today? And I'm like, I don't care. I saw a lot and they mesmerized me. I barely ever call the shot because it, you get mesmerized and, 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 and seeing the power of mallard ducks or a coyote charging your call or a Rocky mountain elk bugling or a mule deer scraping or anything that happens in the outdoors that you can, that you have seen or witnessed or that you can visualize in your mind. That's what we need to protect. And I think that that's what we need to really, really key in on. And Mitch, you work with a ton of different producers and a ton of different organizations. Am I onto something when I say that? Because I really, 
really think that as you mature into your hunting career, it, whether you're 20 or 25, it might be important to kill a limit. But as you start to get a little bit older, you'll start to realize that at any given time, we can be not hunting anymore. Like right now they're talking about making it 60 day season with four ducks a day in California, which it's usually a 105 day season with a seven day limit. So anything can happen. If you guys have been watching the laws in California right now, you can't even buy ammo anymore. You have to go get a background check for ammo. You can only bring four boxes of ammo into the state. If I went over there from my home in Nevada to hunt dove, I can't even go over there and hunt dove with regular non-toxic. It has to be a hundred percent steel shot now. And you can only bring four boxes into the state of California. So little by little things are happening that are detrimental to what we consider our culture and our lifestyle of being a hunter gatherer conservationist so to me that's very important along with the dog talk today and how important dogs are there's a lot of issues out there that we have to have voices like laura her dad fred eichler mitch petrie everybody that's on this panel it's very important to educate ourselves on that so when it does come time to educate somebody that is against it we have a strong voice and a lot of strong voices is that fair to say mitch absolutely i think at uh, outdoor sportsman group we're investing heavily in conservation not to win everybody over and make every, turn everybody into a hunter, but just make it okay to hunt and have people understand the conservation model in North America and how it works. And, you know, and we get hung up sometimes on the African conservation, but you're right, we have a lot of work to do at home just to make sure that people do understand uh, we, how we are taking care of uh, animals, you know, through uh, hunter initiatives and funding through licensing and the conservation groups. And, you know, I'm a big part of Pheasants Forever here in Minnesota and you know, people say, "Oh, you just want to, you want to, you know, save the pheasants for more for you to shoot." As I know, we're all about land and preservation and preser preserving the opportunity for our kids to be able to experience and what we've kids. experienced, right? So think about that, guys. As Andy gets up and gets that guitar tuned up, we're going to hear him play another one of his future hits. That song that he sang, Time Machine, is still sticking in my head. I think Luke Combs is going to make that a hit. I mean, everything that King Midas touches right now is gold. I mean, am I, not, am I lying, Andy? Luke's hot, ain't he? No, you're not lying. And he's a hell of a guy. He's a great voice in conservation and hunting. He's he's doing things right now as we speak that that's going to be good for our lifestyle. So I wanted to say thank you to the panel, the guys that stuck around through the weather. It's not ideal today, but the one the, the main thing I want to say thank you to is you, Canuba, for being a part of an event like this and bringing a panel like this. They pay for this. They finance this because they truly care about the outdoors, about hunting and fishing and conservation and dogs and the maintenance and the health and the nutrition of our pets, our dogs. I got to go visit one of their research centers up in up north in ohio a couple months ago and it's amazing the scientific research that's going on to make sure that every time a scoop of food is taken out one of these bags of eucanuba that it's the absolute best that can go into one of our dog or cat's body so consider that next time y'all go to chewy.com or petco or I don't know who else sells sell Fleet Farm. What else? Where else up here? Give Your me some. Your veterinary to, office. Vet, yeah, there you go. Just think. Consider you. Consider you Canuba because they are strong, strong, strong when it comes to giving back to our heritage and our lifestyle of hunting in the outdoors, as well as the research that goes in to the food that they put in those bags and on that shelf. So, guys, without further ado, let's give the uh, panel a big round of applause up here from Game Fair 2019. I'm really irritated that nobody won those duck calls. I'm going to have to figure out how to give them duck calls away. I need to have some kids run up. Maybe I'll just give them to them two kids right there. They're good looking. Who's your right. dad on the end? You're, you get your looks from your mom, obviously, right? <laughs> Is your dad here? Oh, that's him right there? Oh, I didn't know that. All right, guys. Andy Austin, Nashville, Tennessee. 
He's just signed his first publishing and songwriting deal. He is an up-and-coming, you-know-what, bad, you-know-what, that's going to be on our radio. So you've heard it here first at the Yukonuba 10 at Game Fair 2019 when he's got a number one in the next 18 months. Y'all remember Yukonuba for bringing him up here to Game Fair. Thank you all very much for coming out today. Right, so this is a uh, – it's not really a sad song. It's just about having the right person at the wrong time. It's called One Foot in the Door. There's a diamond ring everywhere I look, and I got buddies putting car seats in the back seats of their trucks. There's few and far between that I ain't drinking here alone. I know I'd better settle down, or there's a chance that you'll be gone. Girl, I know you're perfect, and you're the best I'll ever do. But until I find myself, I can't give it all to you Because I ain't ready, don't mean I'll never be I need time to catch up to you outgrowing me Yeah, I might be standing at this fork here in the road That's about as far from you as I'll ever go I may be happy But I ain't leaving That's for sure I'm just loving you With one foot in the door I know you need a little More than what I got to give Baby, I can't blame you Every time I don't make sense Growing up is what you need from me That just ain't a promise I can keep Because I ain't ready Don't mean I'll never be I need time to catch up To you outgrowing me yeah, I might be standing at this fork here in the road That's about as far from you as I'll ever go I may be happy, but I ain't leaving, that's for sure I'm just loving you with one foot in the Tomorrow, I'd have to understand Knowing that would kill me Makes me a better man Because I ain't ready Don't mean I'll never be I need time to catch up To you outgrowing me yeah, I might be standing at this fork here in the road But that's about as far from you as I'll ever go I may be happy, but I ain't leaving, that's for sure 
I'm just loving you with one foot in the door. Thank you.